I'm Krista Tippett. My guest, Isabel Mukunyora, lived the mixed spiritual messages of colonial Africa, traditional beliefs on the one hand and on the other the Christianity brought by Westerners. For many years, she says, her religious life consisted of haunting questions. I wondered very much about the promises of heaven and the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It was all raising questions of what the meaning of God's love is. Does it have to cost so much (laughs) and be so difficult to see? In post-colonial Zimbabwe, Isabel Mukunyora became intrigued by white-robed people she saw wandering into meadows at the fringes of the modern city of Harare. This hour, she tells their story, a story that echoes tensions and promises in present-day Africa and beyond. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. This free podcast of Speaking of Faith is provided by American Public Media. Please support this valuable public radio service and contribute today. Go to the station listings page at speakingoffaith.org to learn more about becoming a member of your local public radio station. I'm Krista Tippett. At the end of the 19th century, Western colonizers set out to Christianize Africa. In our time, Christianity is being Africanized. The Massawi apostles were founded by an African John the Baptist. They follow an ancient spiritual pull to the wilderness while addressing the present drama of life in Africa and beyond. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, Sacred Wilderness, an African story. My guest today, religious scholar Isabel Mokunyora, was born in the land we now know as Zimbabwe. Until she was 21 in 1980, it was called Rhodesia, after the British industrialist Cecil Rhodes. Her grandmother was a herbalist who cultivated a traditional African spirituality linked to nature and ancestors. Her parents were Roman Catholic. Like many Africans in the colonial period that stretched from the late 19th to the late 20th century, Isabel Mukunyora felt caught in her own country between several worlds. From the age of three, I learned English words of one kind or another. It was just life, (laughs) ABC. (laughs) And uh, it's not because I ended up uh, highly educated. This was the day-to-day experience of anyone who who lived in the colonial system. You go to school, you start learning uh, a new world, if you like. And all the time you're having to uh, process the new ideas against the background of the old. Isabel Mukunyora left home to study in England. She returned to Africa as a scholar of religion. Northern Africans and East Africans have been predominantly Muslim since the earliest days of Islam. Some of the most ancient Christian traditions are also found in Africa, such as the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. But as late as 1900, most Central and Southern Africans still practiced traditional indigenous religions. Then, under the influence of the imperial British and Portuguese and Spanish, they largely began to convert, like Isabel Mukunyora's parents, to Christianity. The continent of Africa now has the largest number of active, practicing Christians in the world. But as colonialism came to an end, African Christians also began to mourn what they had given up. Interests surged in indigenous traditions. In response, in the 1960s, Pope John XXIII blessed the Africanization of Christianity. Protestant movements have spread rapidly in recent decades, in part because they have been attentive to local cultures, meeting Africans where they live. Isabel Mukunyora describes a third way, a religious tradition that is Christian yet African-initiated. She has followed and studied one vivid example of this phenomenon. The Masawi apostles claim five million members in and around Zimbabwe. 
the Masawe shun Western-style church buildings and meet in the open air, in marshlands and wilderness they consider sacred. Mukanyora is currently a professor of religious studies at Western Kentucky University. As she tells it, the story of the Masawe echoes and seeks to redeem many wounds of Africa's past and present, patterns of displacement, marginality, and change. The Masawe emerged from Isabel Mukanyora's own tribal culture and language, Shona, though she knew nothing about them as a child in Catholic boarding school. During the 60s and 70s when I was born, people tended to simply inherit the pre-Vatican attitudes and ways of uh, spreading a Catholic spirituality, if you Mm -hmm. like. Now, this was very difficult for me because I was actually living in a context where my friends were mostly orphans and people who were were suffering certain kinds of misfortunes that made them totally dependent on uh, these missionaries whose whole agenda was to mix up European values of a cultural nature with uh, their understanding of Christianity as a religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we spoke in English. Sometimes we sang Latin with our books upside down because mm-hmm. it stopped mattering. <laughs> and um, it meant that for me, a lot of questions in my youth because I also happened to have close by my grandmother who had um, refused to become a convert of the Catholic Church on the grounds that she believed in God already. She could not denounce her own ancestors. And um, Christianity, the missionary way, was simply a way of Europeanizing the people. So because I was close to her, there were too many questions coming from every direction, if you like. And did that questioning continue? You ended up uh, leaving Africa for quite a few years, I believe. You you ended up at Oxford more than once. Um, what happened to those questions as you when you went away? I married a Methodist uh-huh. <laughs> who made matters worse because she said, well, you do need to read the Bible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which just compounded no your problem. It's no use being nice and polite only until you read the Bible. <laughs> so I, I, I remember reading Genesis and trying to work through it and getting nightmares in the process because the Old <laughs> Testament was is very violent books <laughs> and parts <laughs> of it. So we went to England together with this young man then and mm-hmm. we uh, were both students of theology. In fact, him more than me. I just wanted to, I had the questions, but it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be an academic and solve mm-hmm. everything, but reading helped. <laughs> but it also made it worse in the sense that there were no answers really to the questions I was asking as an African. Name some of those questions for me, can you? Uh I wondered very much about the promises of heaven, that God really had compassion if I was having to work so hard, and the suffering of Jesus on the cross, which Catholics made very vivid (laughs) in African churches, bothered me to see this kind of manifestation of the suffering and the Eucharist. It was all raising questions of what the meaning of God's love is does it have to cost so much (laughs) and be so difficult to see? Right. And I think that's very much an African experience, Uh, but it doesn't mean everybody um, didn't find the hopeful message of Christianity that sustains a lot of us today. Yeah. I mean, as I understand it, there is in traditional African spirituality a very much of a focus on trying to make sense of and face suffering and evil in the world and in human experience. Is that right? Yes. I mean, did you feel that Christianity succeeded less well (laughs) at that task, even though it seemed to be so much in the center? Is that what you're saying? Curiously attached to ideas of uh, progress that Africans were embracing left, right and center, actually. (laughs) So to be a Christian, for example, in the colonial period 
meant also an education that came with particular skills and it also meant urbanization, mm-hmm. which was seen then as the way forward, you know, in terms of these new technologies, new ways of uh, even houses you live in uh, were now square rather than the old hut and so on. And people loved all those things, actually. They loved the new houses? Yes, yeah. just to yes. modernize was mm-hmm. a big thing. So you find that Africans were embracing certain things and happily embracing Christianity as the religion that sustains those things. And so that embracing Christianity was, was more about embracing a, a vision of the future than facing the suffering and evil of life head on. I guess... African religions uh, that were operating in the background had certain kinds of continuities with uh, Christianity as taught by missionaries, only they were dressing it in Western clothing, if you like. Mm -hmm. But uh, there were continuities like uh, belief in a God who created the world, for instance, belief that there must be some kind of mediation between being human in this world and a God up there. In the African sense, it would be the ancestor. Mm -hmm. Uh, The European missionaries were saying Christ. But it's the same pattern, if you like, of thinking Mm -hmm. uh, that links man or humanity to God and these kind of messages there that made it easy for Africans to actually practice Christian spirituality without necessarily wanting to be colonial subjects. Well, tell me about going away and coming back then and how that shaped your your religious path, your questions and the answers you were looking for and finding. I always had this idea that I would go away. (laughs) Sometimes I wished I was a bird and fly away. (laughs) But uh, my personal circumstances were actually uh, made me miserable. They made me feel that I did not belong where I was. And so I had this go away, find peace, find harmony. And I didn't particularly think in material terms, but I, I did want to find a better world somewhere. So the Masoe started to intrigue me because they are a going-away kind of people. Shona scholar Isabel Mukunyora. This is Shona music of the Misawe apostles. They sometimes turn sacred texts into songs, and music is interspersed liberally with preaching and prayer in their services, which span four to six hours. The founder of the Masawe Apostles was born Baba Johanna Sixpence, but later became known as Johanna Masawe. He chose his new surname to denote the hardship in which he developed his religious ideas and the marginalization of the Shona people under white colonialism. The Shona word sowe, related to the word sasa, suggests borders and uninhabited fringes. When Isabel Mukanyora returned from Oxford to teach at the University of Zimbabwe, she felt like an outsider. She was now a divorced woman with a child. In African culture, she says, this alone made her marginal and deeply suspect. She was staying in the beautiful suburban house of a friend in the capital city of Harare, which resembled a giant English cottage. But just beyond her gate and across the road was a vast, dried-up marshland, Sasa. Mukunyora walked to the university through the tall grasses of these empty expanses at the edges of the city, and there she encountered mysterious white-robed people gathering for long hours of prayer in sticky clearings that they considered sacred. So I met the Masoe just because I, I wouldn't go to church those days. Right. <laughs> I right. would sit, obviously, 
meditating or worrying about my future and see these people who were walking the other direction from the direction of the churches. Now, the churches were in the center of yes. the city, right? You in Harare? Yes, in mm-hmm. the high street or mm-hmm. in the middle of the expensive suburb, where, like where I met them. These people were going into meadows and dried marshes behind eucalyptus trees and strange places and they intrigued me. And they wore white robes. They wore white robes and they were clearly very content about what they were doing, didn't uh, look twice at everyone else going to these other churches. And I admired that. And there was a beauty to their dress in the sense that you couldn't from a distance actually tell who was male and who was female. Although it turned out that predominantly the membership is female, but always with male leadership. Right. Did you kind of follow them out into the marshes and fields? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And they challenged me straight away about education, that it doesn't lead you to heaven, really. Okay. <laughs> so I had to strip myself of all pretensions of being learned and wanting to go to Oxford and stuff like that and <laughs> learned to meet them on their terms as uh, African Christians. You write about the word sasa. Oh, sasa, yes. Sasa, which in Shona, in which is also your language, is that correct? Your yes. ancestral language. Um it means wild grasslands, like the spaces that these people worshipped in. But you've also written, and I just want you said, Sasa evokes feelings of dread, but they are also places of illumination. What do you mean by that? In the Bible, for example, Moses goes into the wilderness, and that's where he encounters the God of compassion who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. So it's that kind of thing, going somewhere where you really do not expect to find anything that might be said to be a promising or nourishing of one. And yet that is exactly where you find the source of hope. So Sasa is actually the root Bantu word for these fringes, these grasslands. But the Masoe create their own additional meanings with it because they are using it in the context of their reading of Christianity and messages of the Bible rather than the uh, traditional religions. I just want to dwell on these spaces that where they meet again. They don't. They wouldn't meet in the churches, as you said. They went in the other direction. But, but also the way you described it as you were kind of poking around, following them in Harare, often near affluent suburbs, but these would be fields that people would walk through who were perhaps domestic workers in these large houses. But also there's nothing romantic about this wilderness. I mean, or at least at least some of it you talk about it being places with mosquitoes and mud and, yeah. and where there was waste disposal. I don't know. It, it's just intriguing to me because with the way you, when you describe it in detail, it, these don't sound like, a, I don't know, holy places. <laughs> yes, I guess I'm describing it as someone who had more insight about the landscape or really wanted to think about what I was looking at uh, square. <laughs> I do not think to the believers this is necessarily horrible. To them, there were places to get away from the humdrum of life in Worst places in the crowded townships in which everybody lived. Anything was better than some of the crowded conditions that the domestic workers lived in. No lights, one room, dark, limited access to certain facilities. You just want to get out wherever you go. So I'm describing something that the believers do not necessarily see as actually terrible. Although... For them, we are going into the wilderness, and the wilderness is in the fringes of things, and uh, we meet our God there. You also describe how, I mean, the quality of open air, that that, in fact, had a sacred significance. Yeah, I think the sacredness of the spaces is very important, and there were mysterious ways of actually indicating that there were whatever else one thought uh, on sacred land. Once you arrive... You took off your shoes, you um, removed all your bags, gadgetry, you remove everything and you enter these spaces where women sit in a particular way, facing a particular direction. Men do the same and it started to look 
that there was a sacred place in the wilderness that mm. way when they took over a particular point and simply transformed it through the behavior and the things they did there and they took water to these places i think uh, clean water milk honey all kinds of things they used to symbolize that uh, the holy spirit was going to bring about life You mentioned Moses, but Jesus went to the wilderness. And I mean, even in the history of Christianity and, and yes. other religions, the wilderness does seem to have a pull. And I mean, I'm also thinking about in the early church in the fourth and fifth and sixth centuries, the desert mothers and fathers, the kind of semi-hermits who went out into the deserts of Egypt and Syria. I mean, there is a, this has happened before oh, yes. <laughs> in Christian history. Yes. Do the Masawe know that story? Do they do they consciously know themselves to be part of that story? Yes, I think so. They know about it. And it's almost unfair that I introduced them in terms of the Old Testament, Moses going into the wilderness, actually, because the name Johanne Masawe is derived from John the Baptist, who is a John of the wilderness of the Bible. Shona scholar Isabel Mukunyora. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Sacred Wilderness, an African story. In the Christian New Testament, John of the Wilderness is John the Baptist, a prophetic figure of transition. He appeared in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, preaching and pointing towards a new religious future. Johanna Masawe prefigured the end of the cultural and religious assumptions of colonial Africa. I think he was born around 1915. There isn't a record of his date, so scholars tend to shift around a little. But he was first recognized by the police, of all people, oh, right. <laughs> in 1932. He turned up in places where, in terms of the colonial landscape, should have stayed empty behind factories, wherever he knew he might find workers or people who were looking for jobs, people who were struggling with adjusting to the new colonial way of arranging everything, he would turn up and start preaching the gospel there. And this was very annoying, I'm sure, because the colonials tended to require of Africans certain documents so that you needed to have a business purpose in town. And preaching was not a business purpose. Okay. <laughs> and so for an African man, as early as the 1920s into 1930s, to start preaching the gospel, this was um, breaching the norms. <laughs> yeah. So they had to investigate him because he was occupying wrong spaces. So this is the first time he's documented as an historical figure. Is that what you're saying? Yes. In police records? Okay. Yes. And within the context of a lot of fear and suspicion about Africans leading religious groups. Because in Zimbabwe, um, the first reaction of Africans was religious reaction to the arrival of um, the white settlers in, in the 1890s. The comments were made that God was offended by the arrival of the settlers because they were taking over sacred land And it was a uh, divine duty, if you like, of every African mother, husband and so on to resist this takeover of the land. So since that time, that rebellion was silenced and explains a lot about Zimbabwe today, actually. What does that say about Zimbabwe today? The same question of the takeover of land remains with the people, actually, for, from that time until today. It kind of colors the nationalism, and it is also very easily manipulated by the current regime uh, of Robert Mugabe, because the idea is that the land was taken, your ancestors owned this land, and therefore, if I say, fight for it, or just take it by force from these white settlers, 
then you shouldn't object to that because that's just kind of natural. (laughs) And almost has religious symbolism. Yes. And so so Johanna Masawe, he took the name Masawe, which has its roots, I believe, in this word sasa, these wild grasslands that we were talking about. Yeah. Okay. What was understood to be his calling? What happened to him and what did he perceive and then teach that had such an appeal that today reaches, I don't know, five million people, I think you said, in just central and southern Africa? Yeah. He was addressing displacement, the very fact of uh, people no longer knowing what ideas really make you well in a society. The tendency in European schools, and this I experienced for myself. In your Catholic school? Yeah, Mm -hmm. but uh, everyone followed the same program in terms of uh, uh, missionary teaching. Really had a disregard for the African culture and religions. And Masoe had a way of expressing the anxiety by speaking of uh, being displaced and being in the fringes and... um, practicing a spirituality that addressed people who were displaced. So I think he he fulfilled a special need that anyone who is displaced will actually find fulfillment in. And he wasn't always explicitly concerned with the politics itself because this is a healing movement at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, the healing is not just physical, but 80% of the time it's... uh, social and psychological, yeah, because the the prayer meetings are really a site for being angry and crying, right? (laughs) telling your friends what's wrong with you, and they sort you out by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they shake you as well if they're into the spirit and things like that. But the the healing ceremonies, which are the main attraction of the Masoe, Mm -hmm. are expressive of uh, the kind of uh, gap he filled. You know, what I'm curious when I hear that, because it was, as you've been describing, the Christian church or manifestations of Christianity, yeah. in fact, that had left people displaced and, and not just religiously, but also economically, politically, it had contributed to that. So why did they not just reject Christianity outright and turn to the African traditions, which in fact are very much incorporated in their practices. I think it takes us back to that um, point I made earlier about the continuities between some of the African uh, beliefs and practices and uh, beliefs and practices that Christianity was teaching. I mean, if a culture is hit by a new idea, it's not really about rejecting it just because you've been imprisoned or you are enslaved as we have with African Americans here but some of these ideas one comes across even in the context of uh, what might look very negative communicate something that one keeps Shona scholar Isabel Mukunyora this is Speaking of Faith after a short break More conversation with her on African diaspora, the Shona male and female image for God, and having faith in being lost. Our award-winning website, speakingoffaith.org, features the music of the Masawe with an introduction from Isabel Mukunyora. You can explore maps tracing the growth and trajectory of religion in Africa. Also, sign up for our weekly email newsletter with my journal. Subscribe to our podcast and iTunes Best of 2006 selection for a free download of our weekly program. Beginning in March, our podcast will include selected audio clips from my upcoming book titled Speaking of Faith. Listen when you want, where you want. Discover something new at speakingoffaith.org.
Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Naomi's New Morning with Naomi Judd, sharing stories of hope. This week, a young woman struggles with anorexia, an illness that has consumed her life. Sunday mornings, 11 Eastern, on Hallmark Channel. And by Harper San Francisco, publishers of The Last Week, What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Final Days in Jerusalem, by John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg. A new paperback edition with a discussion guide now available. More at harpercollins.com. And by Samuel Goldwyn Films and Bristol Bay Productions, presenting Amazing Grace, the true story and song behind the abolition of the British slave trade, opens February 23rd. Join the conversation about Speaking of Faith programs. Purchase discussion guides, program CDs, and other tools for your small group, book club, or classroom at speakingoffaith.org. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Sacred Wilderness, an African story. I'm speaking this hour with Isabel Mukunyora, who's followed and studied a religious movement, the Masawi Apostles, that embraces Christian tradition while addressing the particular insights of life and history in Africa. The Masawi have an estimated 5 million members in Mukunyora's native Zimbabwe and elsewhere in southern and central Africa. The founder of this movement, Johanna Masawi, emphasized an ancient spiritual pull to the wilderness, finding meaning, as Isabel Mukunyora says, in the margins. Masawi is also a guiding figure for other African religious movements. For example, the Gospel of God Church, based in northeastern Africa, with members from Sudan to India. You've written in a scholarly paper that, um, for you, I think I understand this as the, the kind of intellectual context in which you are putting this, that that for several decades the great emphasis for African theologians has been trying to face up to the challenges of post-colonialism by drawing attention to traditional African religions. Yes. And what you're saying is that this story of the Masawe, this movement, and others like it, is important because it shows that in fact... There have been these these mergers <laughs> mm-hmm. that are driven by Africans and imagined by Africans and led by Africans that, in fact, as you say, take the core of Christian truth, Christian belief, but are also very African in orientation and practice and very meaningful for people exactly where they live. Yeah. The Masoe apostles and even a lot of the missionary converts to Christianity have turned against open kind of belief in the ancestors. In the ancestors. Yeah, that you you really do not. They're very ambivalent about the ancestors. Which is a really fundamental yes. aspect of African traditional religious sensibility. Mm-hmm. And I really wish people grasped this fact because it's, there is no traditional African culture to keep expecting Africans to turn back to and hold on to forever. (laughs) It's very clear now that that is not the case and that is not the best way to go forward because of these processes of the exchange of ideas, meaning, you know, economies, change in structure. A whole lot of things have just shaken and the Masoi are an example of people creating new boundaries of meaning for people caught up in this uh, changing environment and but the first reaction to having been colonized was oh let us just say oh you messed us up we actually did have good ideas of our own but the picture is complex because human human nature is complex yes we we are complicated people yes (laughs) yeah and women in particular had things to gain from not holding on to the traditional ancestor for example and that feels important to you, that, that it's all right to let go of some of that? Yes, I feel that uh, if you embrace a religion and it's lived in a liberating way, 
then you must face up to that and 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 know that some things uh, can be shaken off. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's what happens all the time anyway, because that's what the gospel does. It meets people in cultures and presents certain challenges. I I don't want to to go any further without talking about women. I mean, you've been mentioning that, but that's a very important focus for you. And as I understand it. Women are ceremonial leaders in the Masawe tradition. They have they are seen to have spiritual gifts and even kind of mystical powers. And yet, men lead worship. Is that yes. right? But you've said that you you think that the religious aspirations of women and ideas about women help explain the vibrancy of the Masawe movement as a whole. I mean, explain that. First of all, my knowledge of the Masawe was uh, shaped by the fact that I was a woman rather than a man. They approached the sites of prayer differently once you are close to the, the sacred places. Men go their way, women go their way. And although the men acting as official leaders, which is the norm in the wider society and in the traditional culture, the lineage system is male in Zimbabwe, Women had this space they would occupy as women because they were sitting together. I found just sitting with these women and hearing them sometimes question and challenge what the official leaders were saying, I found that there is really a Masoa spirituality that is woman-oriented and explains this very Africa-wide phenomenon of women outnumbering men in churches. And it's not just about well, it's all over the world, women can be larger, but there are certain patterns of expression uh, that suggest um, a real appropriation of Christianity as women and thinking patterns that go with it. Is that just Christianity or is it also other religions in Africa as well that women have that? In the scope of what we call African traditional religions, uh, pre-colonial, women could have ritual authority. Women could be executors at marriage, for example. Women could be voices of the high god. In, in Zimbabwe, in particular, the high god Mwari, who is now used in the African Bibles, Shona Bibles. Mwari was a male-female deity. And that is used in the Shona Bible, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. The, oh, yes. Missionaries were asking uh-huh. people, what's your name for God? And people said Mari, and they took the word Mari and oh. wrote it in the Bible. But the concept there uh, is not necessarily exactly the same. But there's a sameness assumed in the, in the translation process mm-hmm. that goes on. Anyway, in the in terms of gender, this is interesting, Mari. That Mari, there's a female dimension and a male dimension. Both are used. Sometimes the male is stressed, but most interesting in terms of women is the fact that the voice of Mwari, who is like your prophet, the one who declares the word of God, if you like, mm-hmm. that says the Lord kind of person, is a woman. And if she's not a woman, it is a man who assumes a feminine title. Hmm. Yes, so the voice of Mwari is called Mbonga, which is... Uh, I am the wife of God. I speak on behalf of God. So to speak on behalf of God is to occupy a wifely position in relation to the high God. Oh, that's interesting. So so it kind of transformed it. I'm just thinking about how, in fact, in Genesis, in English translation, uh-huh. it's in the first chapter, not in the second chapter, but in the first chapter of Genesis, God speaks in the plural and says, let us create man in our image, male and female, he created them. I mean, it has that same connotation without ever explaining it. It sounds like that Shona word, in fact, um, makes that more vivid. (laughs) I think this is the, the fun of it for me because it forces you to look back at certain things. And, uh, one thing that fascinates me when I look at these oral traditions in Africa, where you can actually have easily in one language 10 to 15 extremely popular creation stories that people will tell. They all designate that a God, that there is a creation process that brings everything into existence. Uh, But in the storytelling of this, 
they always male, female, things bounce around. Sometimes if a man is talking, he will <laughs> put it in terms of the masculine. And then sometimes they are combined. And sometimes you get a distinct sense that whatever is happening, there is also a female dimension that cannot be suppressed completely. Uh, especially when it comes to the idea of divine presence, uh, which I associate with this voice, that God is actually becomes present in the world. And in becoming present in on earth, this is a taking on of the feminine nature. Hmm. Yeah. Life, childbearing, everything else starts to fit into there. And uh, so I found lots of rich, rich material Shona scholar Isabel Mukunyora. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Sacred Wilderness, an African story. I asked Isabel Mukunyora how delving into one movement, the Misawai Apostles, helps clarify themes in the larger picture of Africa's religious present. Some 100 million Africans follow ethnic, tribal, indigenous traditions. There are nearly 400 million Christians, including ancient Orthodox and Coptic expressions of the Christian faith, alongside new evangelical and charismatic converts. And nearly one quarter of the world's 1.2 billion Muslims live on the African continent. Islam came to parts of Africa as a young religion in the 7th century. This is actually a very good question of uh, Islam and Christianity because um, southern and central Africa is much more predominantly Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British and that's had where some you come stuff from. going yes. on. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then, but West Africa has this extremely rich history, not only of uh, a Christianity that spreads there since. Uh, Conquista, Portuguese times, mm-hmm. maritime Christianity. But uh, you also have uh, Islam as a traditional religion of Africa, really, right. as far as that word goes. You, we, no one can ever really generalize about African religions in yeah. this sense. But the Masoes strike me in terms of the, the global, the wider picture, in the sense that they have become transnational with their kind of uh, message. See, it goes with everybody. You go to them, you're called by your first name. Nobody is going to ask you where you came from because uh, that's not why you go to the fringes. (laughs) You go there because you are lost (laughs) and are looking for something, a message of hope. So they take that as a starting point. So the Masoa spirituality, a lot of African-initiated churches have been growing in Africa despite independence, actually. There used to be theories that having these types of religious movements would die down if you, when Europeans uh, relinquished power as colonial. Right. Uh, but this is not the case. It's the opposite, isn't it? The churches have kept growing. So you yeah. have groups like the Masoe, actually, sometimes people do not want to call churches. They are not a member of the World Council of Churches. Okay. So they would be seen as partly mixing past and present, and they're just, uh, you know... That's why you find them interesting, isn't Yes. It? I like being able to teach Christian traditions and mm-hmm. think about these wider developments uh, that make me think about, you know, that history changes and stuff. Right, and you use the word diaspora. Uh, Johanna Masawe. I guess led numbers of followers to different to other countries, right? Yes, um, Botswana, South Africa, Zambia, Kenya. Yeah, but you know that word diaspora is also so evocative. Yes, um, historically, and uh, and and you use, you just use the word transnational. Also, in our time, it takes on different meanings. But I suppose the image of African diaspora that we have is slavery, mm-hmm. right? and you are using that word in our time in a very different way? I don't think so, actually. No? No, because if you... The word diaspora in its Greek use originally Mm -hmm. simply suggested that people can be scattered, they can leave home for various kinds of reasons, 
political, it can be an earthquake, you know, who knows what happened in ancient times. But the idea of uh, the diaspora in its uh, Greek uh, root sense isn't filled with all these connotations that I actually think are quite contemporarily okay. historical. So that's why how I use the word diaspora, mm -hmm. that it suggests uh, displacement, it suggests movement, uh, leaving home, and all these things that I do not think really take away very much from the original meaning of the word. I think the faster you move with technologies, all these spreading movies and ideas coming to and fro that uh, we can associate with globalization, mm -hmm. create a hunger for something steady and consistent in people. Okay. And um, actually, because I, I did when I was uh, caught up in my search, I went to the very origins of Christianity. I didn't want to listen to no more missionaries. Right. <laughs> I thought, let me go to where it began and see what's going there. I see in the origins of Christianity something people forget today, i.e. a culture that is changing very quickly, where there is a lot of movement, a lot of mixing, a lot of uh, wars causing people to... In those first centuries, e first decades, really. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the Christianity as a religion... It's sad to miss that, to know that characteristic of it. Cause, and for me, Masoe is really recapturing in his own African way things that uh, are known to create in people a hunger for religion in the contemporary world, but reminding us of uh, the past and of the character of Christianity at one level where it really, Jesus is a radical man in a world that was crumbling. <laughs> the right. people of God were, you know, looking for answers. <laughs> right. And and he had a message of yeah. love and compassion giving, you know, that's how it works. When we first began to speak, you spoke of your childhood and being kind of torn between this Catholic upbringing and your grandmother who had resisted it and, and stuck to her traditional religious sensibility and said she already believed in God and she didn't need to take on another way of thinking. Yeah. You talked about how your frustration and your questions that were left for you, like, um, is there such a thing as heaven? And, and if there's a God and he's compassionate, then why is there so much suffering? I wonder... Um, if you found new ways to come at those questions um, personally or through this study that you've done of this African tradition, which kind of merges, in some ways merges those two ways of being in the world. Yes, I, I have decided that life is a journey and uh, we search for meaning, really. We search for meaning and we, we hope <laughs> right. uh, that we don't crumble. I've had, because of being a single parent, had to really work extremely hard. I'm probably the first single mum to arrive in Oxford <laughs> and be right. foreign and saying to the theology faculty there, which is extremely uh, kind of uh, into orthodoxy, that right. I, I was going to write about them as so way. <laughs> so I'm used to... Um, the fact that you just have to work at things, you know. And it's not that there are always all the answers. And mm -hmm. the Masoe, although you maybe they are more into the supernatural, what really struck me about them is how they are also extremely pragmatic. Right. <laughs> yeah, they are talking about trade, about helping each other, uh, with finding jobs, coping with day-to-day -day things. And those are the sources of suffering in human life, aren't to, they? To, to yes. help um, cope with this change and, um, and, and, and develop a hope. I think they fit into modern world, only they are dressed in another way right. <laughs> uh, to fit in a, a Western society. But I feel very comfortable being kind of the searcher type, ready to be lost. 
okay. wilderness and I always like to encourage people who are equally lost about meaning and the world that, you know, it's about trying and being genuinely part of what you are doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isabel Mukunyora is assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Western Kentucky University. She's the author of a new book about the Misawe Apostles titled Wandering a Gendered Wilderness, Suffering and Healing in an African-Initiated Church. Visit us online at speakingoffaith.org. Listen to the music of the Masawi with an introduction by Isabel Mokunyora. Explore maps tracing the growth and trajectory of religion in Africa. Also, subscribe to our email newsletter and podcast and never miss another program again. Our podcast is a free download of each week's program and beginning in March will include excerpts from my upcoming book, Speaking of Faith. Listen when you want, wherever you want. Discover something new at speakingoffaith.org. In an upcoming program, we'll be exploring the 13th century Islamic mystic and poet Rumi. He's one of the best-selling poets today, and we'd like to hear your stories about reading him. Look for Share Your Story at speakingoffaith.org and tell us more. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck and Jody Abramson. Our online editor is Trent Gillis. Bill Buesenberg is a consulting editor. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. And I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media, presenting Naomi's New Morning with Naomi Judd, sharing stories of hope. This week... A young woman struggles with anorexia, an illness that has consumed her life. Sunday mornings, 11 Eastern, on Hallmark Channel. And by Samuel Goldwyn Films and Roadside Attractions, presenting Amazing Grace, the true story and song behind the abolition of the British slave trade, opens February 23rd. And the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next time, the exuberant spiritual world of Rumi, the 13th century Muslim mystic and best selling poet. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media. <laughs>